Check, one, two, check, check. Coming in loud and clear. Check, check, one, two. Howdy, how? Is this any better? Check, check, one, two. Here we go. Forget it, Jonathan. <laughs> Howdy, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Exploring Cinema. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Josiah. And uh, we are going to just uh, have a good time tonight. Yeah, it's going to be a blast talking about First Reformed. First Reformed. Yeah. But before we get into that, I wanted to tell you, Josiah, that I was at Half of Half the other day looking for a new pair of work pants, uh, which <laughs> I was, I did find. All I, right. My strategy is to scour the store and then go once to the dressing room with two giant handfuls of clothing. Okay, then I like I, that. And I usually leave with like one or two things. Yeah. So I did that. I found one pair of pants that I liked. So that was a success. But I noticed I always have to look at the shoes. Of course. And I noticed that in the men's shoe section, they had maybe 10, 15 pairs of Thursday brand boots of different styles and sizes. Dang. And I thought of you because you've got a sick pair. I do have a sick pair. That you think you dwelled on that purchase for quite a while. Yes. I, I knew I wanted some boots and Thursday was the brand I settled on four like high quality boots on the uh, more reasonable side of things although they're still kind of expensive but yeah I'm really happy with them did you find some did you get a pair so I tried on the pairs that I could you know that fit me that were around my size and I thought about it for a good half hour probably (laughs) (laughs) it's hard because they're connected and there's like a security you know you can't really walk around Mm -hmm. but um, I didn't end up getting a pair they're really nice only because I wasn't sure how much use I would get out of them at this time. So I don't know that I would... go with anything. Yeah. I don't know if I would be wearing them to work or not. And they were, of course, discounted. So it was a great deal for anyone who is looking for exactly that. I just wasn't sure if I needed another pair of boots in my life at this particular moment. But I might go back. I Uh, think you should absolutely go back. I know they'd last a long time. Exactly. Yeah. You will buy them and you will never have to buy another pair. (laughs) Yeah, it was very tempting. Yeah, I may go back. But they were $50. What? Yeah. (laughs) So when are we going? Let's go. I think we could both go back. I, so I thought you'd you want to know. Yeah, you said they had more than like like 10 to 15 pairs? Yeah, ranging from like size 8 to size 12 or 13. Dang. Yeah. I can't believe you didn't pull the trigger. Man. I know. $50, $50 for a pair bucks. of Thursday boots. Instead of 200 I think. Yeah, it's probably gone up at the price of everything. Yeah. But yeah, Thursday boots is getting free advertising to tens and tens of people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, consider sponsoring the show Thursday. So yeah, I, I think it's funny that you use the uh, the term, well, I don't even remember what you said, but you basically imply that we're going to have a good time. And the film we're going to talk about oh, is anything fun. but. <laughs> you didn't have a good time? I mean, I always have a great time feeling terrible. But, yeah, uh, I, I do remember the distinct feeling of despair that I walked out of uh, <laughs> walked out of the theater with when I sort of realized, and I think I've maybe shared this on a previous episode, but you walk out of a movie normally and it's like a relief. You're like back in the real world. Those problems don't matter, you know. But with this movie, it's so concerned about climate change and like mm-hmm. the future of humanity. And walking out of the theater, I was kind of like, wait a second, these are my concerns. <laughs> like, I can't escape this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And like I mentioned, we are going to be talking about one of my favorite films of the 2010s. I'd put it in my top 10. But we're going to be talking about First Reformed, a film written and directed by Paul Schrader, uh, starring Ethan Hawke, 
who gives an incredible performance. And one caveat I would like to give, Jonathan, is my understanding of this film and my thoughts on it are still evolving. Because after the first watch, I thought it was about one thing. And after the second watch, I think it's about another. And as we talk tonight, it can be all over the place. So cool. Just a heads up out there. We're on a journey together, figuring out this film and discussing what it means. Hand in hand. Hand in hand. But I'm actually really excited to dive into First Reformed. Me too. Tonight. I mean, that's the whole reason we have this fucking podcast is so we can talk about things that we love in, in movies. Amen. So Jonathan, much like there is a difference between, say, a novel and literature, do you think that a movie versus a film would be the same idea? Is there some qualitative difference between the two? Or is it just a term that we use interchangeably or <laughs> even that we use just to uh, sound dignified and important when discussing? movies Mm, a novel and literature well um whether i use movie or film i think does depend on the movie i'm talking about and how i feel about it really i think so because i to some degree i mean i might call this a movie i think in my you know in my review of first reformed i might refer to it as a movie or as a film but if i'm talking about dumb and dumber which is a great movie Mm-hmm. But I'm less likely to refer to it as a film. It's a flick. It's a movie. It's fun. People love it. So what is the difference? The film, to me, I'm more likely to use it if I, I guess, attribute some sort of significance, something worth paying attention to or studying or thinking about. Maybe it connotes greater <laughs> respect toward the film or the filmmaker. I don't know. So is it largely a personal or subjective term then? Because who decides what's a movie or what's a film? Yeah, I mean, I think outside of myself or any other individual usage of it, I think that they're synonyms, basically. Yeah, that's kind of my approach. In fact, <laughs> I think I notice when I use the term film, I kind of internally cringe uh-huh. a little bit, even though I use it all the time. Mm-hmm. And that just could be like my own issues, I guess, with academia or whatever. But I just feel like calling something a film is pointless, especially in this day and age, because movies aren't made on film anymore i mean so sure but very few yeah and so the idea of like a film that's something you would hear like a uh, film studies professor using a term film versus movie movie kind of meaning lowbrow and film meaning high-minded uh-huh. and i don't know I, I i don't i don't know if there should be a distinction between the two i think if somebody captures something on a camera then it's a film or a movie whatever you decide to call it mm-hmm. but, but at the same time it does the dumb and dumber example is perfect because i don't know how i can say with a straight face <laughs> dumb and dumber is a fantastic film it's my favorite film <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if I can say that with a straight face. So, I don't know. Maybe we didn't uh, answer the question, but... It's interesting to think about. It is interesting to think about. So, now that we derailed the uh, momentum we had there. No, that was great. Do you want to talk about Paul Schrader? Yeah, I think so. Let's get a little background on, on Paul Schrader. So, Paul Schrader is... He's getting up there now. I think he was 71 when First Reform came out. He's been a writer for a long time. He started hot as a young man with Taxi Driver. And nice. since then, he's worked with Scorsese a lot. He's had a long career as a director as well. Most of his movies aren't super well known. I've seen a few of them. And he's, he's a man of particular themes. Absolutely. And so even the small number of his films that I have seen, there are definitely through lines, men wrestling with with themselves over faith or regret what else comes to mind well that's exactly what i was thinking it's the well-trod path of uh, the isolated and lonely man wrestling with their importance or lack thereof their hope versus despair travis bickle's a perfect example of that he wrote raging bull or co-wrote it at least he wrote, yeah. he wrote raging bull 
Um, even uh, Bringing Out the Dead, kind of a lesser-known Scorsese yeah. film with mm-hmm. Nick Cage as the paramedic, he wrote that. And Nick Cage's character is completely you know, isolated. He's an insomniac, and he's trying to find purpose and meaning in this life that he, that he has that's full of, of death and suffering. Yeah, these men are like teetering on the edge. Yeah, and then, of course, uh, Toller, the priest, is another example of that. His despair is so alone in the dark of night. He does the priestly duties that are required of him. He doesn't outwardly express his despair and his suffering to people. It's when he's by himself and when he's writing his journal that we mm-hmm. see. And on his face. Yeah, many of these protagonists journal. Or if they don't, I think Nicolas Cage's character has narration. Has like an inner monologue yes. going. And Paul Schrader is very interested in faith and spirituality. If I'm not mistaken, he himself is a Christian, a Calvinist even. Which is kind of interesting because his scripts and films are not traditionally what you consider, I guess, in the American church, like glorifying to God or even full of salvation. They're very much largely concerned with suffering and despair, but going on in the face of that. Yeah. And I think First Reform is a perfect example. Uh-huh. So it's just interesting to me. His brand of faith uh, which I would assume he has since he's a Christian is one I can kind of jive with a little bit more you know uh-huh. it just it seems genuine it seems honest yeah because he's not dismissing like the state of the world or some of the hardships of being human he's, in his stories anyway he's like wrestling with all of these things and he's criminally underrated I think Paul Schrader although First Reformed has changed that somewhat First Reformed was the first time if I'm not mistaken that he was nominated for an Oscar individually that's in 2017 I mean when a taxi driver come out 70s so he did taxi driver raging bull and he's finally nominated for first reform in 2017 yeah and as a director in like the later stages of his career he's kind of toiled in obscurity he left hollywood because he was fed up with the studio system or he what he says is that it doesn't exist anymore but uh so he has been able to privately or independently get funding for his films and continue working which is yeah. pretty cool in fact the fact that he was only nominated for original screenplay again I think is a testament to how underrated he is for First Reformed because in my opinion that film should have fucking been nominated for Best Picture it should have probably won it although Moonlight was excellent, so I can't be too upset about that. Ethan Hawke should have been nominated for Best Actor. Should have been nominated for Best Cinematography. I mean, it, the list goes on. So even in the year where he does get some recognition, he's largely left out of all the big categories that I think he's deservedly belonged in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't argue with that. Would have loved to see him get a little more recognition for this. Good. <laughs> <laughs> So, the card counter. One thing I wanted to say is the way that the card counter ends, which I guess I'm going to spoil here. Spoiler alert! (laughs) Where the main character's in prison, the woman comes to visit him and their hands touching through the glass. It ends with that. Well, Mm. through the discourse, I learned that this is directly borrowed from a movie called Pickpocket. Schrader has used this ending three times now. He has three movies that end the exact same way. The two hands? Yeah. Huh. And I've now seen one of the other films. It's American Gigolo with Richard Gere. He ends up in prison and it ends the same way. So I think that's fascinating. It is fascinating. He has no qualms repeating himself and reusing things that he's still intrigued by, I guess. While this isn't the exact same, that brings to mind the ending of uh, Bringing Out the Dead. If you remember, Nick Cage, spoiler alert, goes to the father of his love interest, who's basically clinging to life and wants to end it. Uh He goes and like takes him off life support, and they both connect in that death, in that finality. Their breathing becomes in sync, and I believe he grabs his hand, like puts it to his chest, and they just deeply breathe. 
and look at each other and then the man dies mm. and it's actually like a beautiful peaceful moment even though death is involved for whatever reason when you were bringing that up that image came to mind there's maybe nothing separating the two people but i think it is two people reaching out again for connection connection in a dark place yeah which his movies take a long time to get to but i think there always is a moment of connection and there is that moment of connection at the end of First Reformed yeah. as well. That's a good point. Yeah, which the ending we'll get to because that is awesome and bonkers. <laughs> Stay tuned. And now with another synopsis, <laughs> we bring you Jonathan Zachary. All right, here's my synopsis for First Reformed. Ethan Hawke plays Toller, the reverend of New England's oldest operational chapel, now essentially a tourist attraction. He undergoes crisis after a young man he tries to counsel commits suicide. The young man's deep concerns over climate change and the destruction of the Earth's resources haunt the Reverend as he confronts serious health issues and struggles with the belated loss of his own son in the Iraq War. Nice. Your account on Letterboxd couldn't have said it better. <laughs> <laughs> Good synopsis, Jonathan. Excellent. So there's so many places we could go with this. I imagine that uh, we'll get to them all. Maybe a couple things to keep in mind, and unfortunately I haven't seen these films, but Bergman's Winter Light and... Diary of a Country Priest? Yeah, Diary of a Country Priest mm -hmm. came up over and over yeah. as like direct influences on this film. But also a film called Ordette. Yeah, these are films I haven't seen. Yeah, either. unfortunately I haven't seen them. From what I understand, the ending was taken almost directly from mm -hmm. Ordette. So if you have seen those films then uh, maybe this will make a little bit more sense to you. One more thing we should say about Paul Schrader is that when he was younger, he wrote a book called Transcendental Cinema or something like that. Yes, it a, yeah. It was a book of aesthetics on what he called Transcendental Cinema. And yeah. he said that he finally decided to make a film in that style film that he had been interested in and written about and this book is still used taught in schools to this day yeah he created that definition right mm -hmm. i mean I, I think it was based off of films that he admired and right. directors but he noticed a style and some similarities there so then he called it transcendental yeah filmmaking mm -hmm. which yes first reformed i mean that's supposed to be a perfect example of that why don't we start off by just let's talk about ethan hawk's performance a little bit i mean i i don't i haven't seen every ethan hawk film but it's easily the best performance i've seen from him i love his subtlety in it as reverend toller he is a man just full of agony and suffering and yet there's no bombast or overly emotional scenes with him. Maybe in the very end, when he finally kind of breaks, there, there is that catharsis. But for the most part, like his suffering and his anguish is solitary and it's, it's kind of worn on his face. Like if you notice, like there's a real deep kind of like divot mm -hmm. line in the middle of his face, like throughout most of the movie. Mm -hmm. And his most despairing times are like when he's alone. I don't know, I just, I thought he, was absolutely convincing as a man who is trying to find redemption but carries so much grief and baggage. Yeah, it's very good. He's someone I always like seeing on screen and I, I don't think I've seen him give a bad performance, I mean, that I can think of, but this is quite, yeah, this is definitely like some of his best work. Paul Schrader said that he chose Ethan because he felt that Ethan was starting to show his age. Mm. And he had some of those lines on his face that he wanted for this character. And, and he also said that, you know, because of the way it's filmed, these uh, long shots where the camera doesn't move at all, you get to take details like that in. You notice the marking on it, like his face. And, and the performance is very restrained. I think all, pretty much all the performances in the movie, like there's not a whole lot of expression which goes into the style mm -hmm. of the film that we're talking about. The way he delivers his lines, every 
every time Reverend Toller speaks, it just, it sounds pained, right? Like the words he speaks are painful to him. I just get the sense that like his very breaths, his existence, <laughs> his speech, his communication with people is just, it's all entwined with pain. And it, it just, it comes across, but it doesn't, it, it's not jarring. It's not unbelievable. I think it's a genuine, honest look at, at a man that is consumed with grief and guilt and is uh, losing his faith. I noticed that when he's interacting with anybody else and he's playing his role as, as reverend, he is, you know, he's very, like, kind and his voice is higher. He does a good job of acting concerned and sympathetic. and yeah. And but then when he's writing in his journal and you you're hearing his thoughts, basically his voice is low mm-hmm. and gravelly, and there's such a distinction there. But even when he's donning the mask of priest, I guess doing his duties, his voice inflection does go up in pitch. There's still that kind of fry to it, that gravelly yeah. nature to mm-hmm. it. <laughs> Every time he speaks, it just sounds like he's being drugged across uh, like a jagged surface, <laughs> you know. But I, it's not even necessarily like how I hear it. It's not unpleasant to listen to. It just, it feels painful for him. Mm. Almost like the act, the very act of existing is painful for him. I just think it was a brilliant way to deliver those lines. I, you know, maybe that was direction. Maybe it was Ethan Hawke. I don't know. But it really captured pain in a subtle way. Yeah. The more performances and the more movies that I watch, the more I know deep down I could not do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. That I could not could not be an actor. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, yeah, it's a great performance. Earlier in the film, a member of his small church, a woman named Mary, asks him if he will come speak with her husband, Michael, whom she's concerned about. Mm-hmm. He comes to their home and knows that he's been struggling with depression, knows that it's sort of related to his activism and his concerns about the planet. And the scene that plays out is this incredible conversation where Michael is laying down all this evidence as to why there's no hope, basically. And he's quite convincing, unfortunately. <laughs> right, you know. That is a brutal scene. All these data points about what the Earth is going to be like in just a few short decades. And he's concerned about the world that his yet unborn daughter is going to be inheriting. And Toller is trying to take this in and trying to still argue for hope and try to sort of talk him off of this philosophical ledge that he's on. And this is where, to me, the line of the movie comes I remembered it since the first time I saw this years ago. He says, wisdom is holding two contradictory ideas in your head at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that balancing hope and despair is life itself. Yeah. And I think therein lies the crux of the entire film. It sets it up right there. It's holding those ideas in tension. And I love that part where Michael looks at Reverend Toller and says, can God forgive us for what we've done? And the Reverend says, I don't know who can know the mind of God. That's just so different than most like Christian portrayals <laughs> that you see in, in film. Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> Usually it, it would be, absolutely. <laughs> we of can course, be forgiven. Yeah. we are forgiven. Yeah, he brings up in this conversation, Toller does, how it feels like he has failed. His wife... So, yes, so, so brutal. which is brutal, yeah. He shares how his father served in the military, how he served in the military, and how he encouraged his son to serve in the military, despite his wife not being okay with it. And six months later, his son came home dead from Iraq. Yeah. And his wife, of course, left him. 
and he is left to live with that. Yeah, he, he says, I encourage my son to die in a war that has no moral justification. That might be the best scene in the whole film. Ugh. It happens early. That doesn't mean that the rest of the film's not great and <laughs> worth watching. But that part just sucks you in. And I really do think in that room, that conversation between the reverend and the despairing young man, that is the heart of the film right there. That really captures what the film is concerned with. On first watch, I thought the film was almost exclusively concerned with the loss of faith and how maybe the church and faith is powerless, even problematic in regards to how we treat the planet, how we move forward. I, I thought it was almost like an anti-Christian message to, to a degree. And then when I watched it again, I realized, and in, in reading about it as well, no, that's not it at all. I think the film, based upon that conversation and that, that scene, is very much still a spiritual film, and it's very much concerned with Maybe not even providing answers to, but how do you maintain faith and hope in a world full of like despair and hopelessness? Yeah, I think that both things are in there. There's definitely something about the complicity of the church standing by and not being concerned about the planet and about other real issues because they're too busy. Pastor Jeffers, who is basically Toller's boss and who is the pastor at the large evangelical church that owns First Reformed, he's only concerned with the maintenance of church life, Mm -hmm. the preservation of that church. That's what he's concerned about. Yeah. So he needs donors like Balk, who owns Balk Industries, that comes up in the film, that's listed in the film, is listed as like the seventh greatest polluter of the planet. So there's that. There's the complicity of the church, but, but I think, yeah, more importantly, what do you do with despair? How do you maintain hope? Yeah, and I mean, I I agree. I think when I when I was watching it, I felt like this film was saying the modern church is completely inept in addressing major issues that affect humanity and the planet. I mean, just completely inept mm. and, and pointless. But I also thought it was an indictment of faith, and I don't think that's the case. No. I do think First Reformed and Paul Schrader are very much interested in maintaining faith in the divine, the supernatural, and hope in spite of despair. How do you hold those two intention, you know, those two things that are intention with each other? Yeah, it was just kind of revelatory watching it again, as any good film would be. <laughs> yeah, I think that I was just in awe of the filmmaking, which we can talk about that later. Absolutely. I, we can talk about whatever, man. Yeah, this time around, I really like, it is a slow movie, right? Sure, you yeah. Can, you could call it that, but... It doesn't feel slow because every shot is so controlled and every shot is either it's giving you more information or it's moving the plot forward. And every every shot is so well composed. It's just a movie of complete confidence. And um, I found it like really compelling. Yeah, the, the cinematography and it's very stark and austere. I just, I love like the winter setting uh, all the trees are leafless there's snow on the ground it's it's almost always gray so when there is blood whether it's from michael or that rabbit like it's like wrapped up in barbed wire it's startling yeah. it really pops the visual style and aesthetic lends itself to decay which is a theme of the of the film the decay of faith the decay of the earth <laughs> there's the decay just, of his health his health yeah there's, there's all there's just pollution everywhere 
even though it's not maybe explicitly grotesque, you still just get the feeling like everything is dying. Everything is leading to just bleak death, except for a few key parts that we can talk about. Yeah, austere is the word. You could say that it feels lifeless, but it's also beautiful. And then that's what makes those scenes where he goes to... Abundant life. Abundant life. Which is so ironic. Yeah. I'm just now appreciating that title. (laughs) Right. Abundant Yes. When he he goes to abundant life, that's what... It's so jarring, and it just... It doesn't seem to fit him. Because it is... It's it's a little brighter, and there's more people. It's busier. There's actually, like, smiling (laughs) amongst the characters... Or the people that are singing. And so that's why I get the whole idea that like Toller just doesn't belong in this modern iteration of the church. And he even says so himself, like this isn't what I was called to. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's reminding me of the one short scene where he's like sitting in on like some sort of youth group Mm -hmm. meeting. And you get a little bit of that church speak. Yeah. And it makes me cringe. The young like, youth pastor. It makes me so uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. But he's so hip, man. He's got tattoos and he's, he's got bracelets on. It's his look like a V-neck shirt. It's his performance <laughs> and it's perfect. Yeah. Because it is the thing. It is the like I'm a young, good looking hip dude. Yeah, man. Christian is cool. I've got a smile on my face twenty four seven and I'm enthusiastic and I care about all of you people and Yeah. Like, but then the young girl is like Nobody loves the Lord more than my dad, and my dad just lost his job. Why is that? And the youth youth pastor's like, uh, Reverend Toller, you want to take this one? (laughs) It's perfect. Of course, Toller is just like, well, Christ never promised prosperity, or something like that, something to that effect. And some privileged racist white kid shows up. Yeah, he gets pushed back. I really appreciate, in any movie that is showing the American church the church of the day. I don't need movies to like come out and just like trash it and criticize it, but it's so absent from film, I feel like. It's largely absent. That setting. I feel yeah. like it's really refreshing to see. I don't know if the church is evangelical. That's just what it feels like to me. It feels abundant life, feels like a very typical church in America today. Yeah. It's nice to see that world represented on screen so faithfully. It feels real to me anyway. Yeah, and not only is that church inept, it's in bed with the polluters and and those who um, are the antithesis, I, I would say, of what Christ taught. And in fact, Reverend Toller's kind of viewed as, he's very much, dis, you know, at best he's dismissed. At worst, he's viewed as disillusioned, almost crazy, because he actually <laughs> tries to press the issue of like, where is the church? And leading the charge against environmental injustice and climate change. And he's always, yeah, he's always just kind of dismissed. Yeah. The church wants to be apolitical. They want to make everybody happy. And they want to... But then they take donations. They, you know, they they don't want to upset any donors, of course. They need, you know, they want to keep bringing in money. And I think there's a lot of issues that churches just do not want to take a side on. And, but I think in not taking a stand, they are, of course. Like They're passive. Can, they are passive. They are taking a side. They are political, whether they like it or not. But yeah, Pastor Jeffers, he is a nice guy. He's kind. He seems to care about Toller. Yes, I think he genuinely cares about people. But he also, you know, the modern church is a business. It's a business, and he. I think that he knows that. I think that that he. You have to be as a leader of a church of that size. 
you have to be somewhat pragmatic. And I, I don't know. I feel like he portrays that very well. He's concerned with maintaining and growing his church. That's the yeah. bottom line. Which he kind of alludes to, or not even alludes, but expressly says when he's talking to Reverend Toller towards the end when um, Ethan Hawkes is imploring the church to, to care <laughs> about the environmental disaster. If you remember that, they, that's, that's when, like, towards the end when he starts to become kind of unhinged. And maybe even rightfully so. But he's like, where were we when these people were being elected? And, and why were we so silent? And what was the reverend's name again? Um, Pastor Joel Jeffers. Pastor Joel Jeffers. He's like, but that's not reality. That you know, Here's what I have to deal with. <laughs> and he, he lists all these things that he has to take care of. So one possible critique. I'm curious what you think about this. So as the film progresses, um, Reverend Toller, Toller starts to um, look more into what Michael was, was into as far as environmental activism, but on the extreme side. Some may even call it terrorism. And he, he kind of begins to descend into more uncertainty, but also like starts to become a little bit more extreme to the point where he contemplates hurting people, like innocent people, to get to the polluters, basically. And that part of the film, I actually thought, it didn't like ruin the movie for me at all, but I thought, like, man, that was a really fast shift. I agree 100%. Yeah. It's my issue with the movie is just that I do not understand his shifting so radically. And it's not even about time. You know, they could have made it seem like time. You know, but it's it's the fact that he is is very seriously considering taking the lives of other people and some that presumably are just innocent bystanders. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't seem possible for his character. It's quite a leap. It is. It's quite a leap, and it it just makes him feel like sort of a an unbelievable riff on Travis Bickle, mm. the protagonist from Taxi Driver, yeah. who is believable because he is unhinged from the beginning right. of that movie, and it's only a matter of time. He's like a ticking time bomb. It's only a matter of time before he does something destructive. And the, the people he goes after, I, I would never say are deserving of death, but they're they're certainly a much more criminal element, like explicitly. The people he goes after are exploiting underage girls, you know. So is it justified? I don't know. Probably not. But who uh, Reverend Toller is going after is, yeah, so there's a CEO of like a major polluter who maybe in in, uh, in the film universe deserves his comeuppance. But um, that's it. <laughs> Everybody else is just going about their, their lives, you know. And the other thing is that I feel like there's no time in history where a suicide bomber did anything for their cause. Do you know what I'm trying to say? In no world does what he plans to do, if carried out, have anything but a negative effect for his cause. Because as soon as you do something like that, you are the insane, you are the radical, you are the terrorist. Yeah. And your cause suffers for that, for your act. So I just don't understand. I agree, but but that is assuming that Reverend Toller is like rational at that point. Right. <laughs> yeah, so there's so many reasons you could say you can look at so many things and say, well, this is why he's so unstable, you know. He He, he is unstable. He basically knows that he's going to die soon. Yeah, he's unstable, but n- nothing in his character would suggest that he would like casually take like, lives. Take lives. Yeah. There's nothing to indicate that. 
And so that might be the big criticism of the film. I'm glad you feel that way because I didn't want to come in here and bring that up and sort of hate on this movie that I actually quite like. Yeah, I think it's still a fantastic film. Um, and I think that the first half is is like perfect because like I said, I love the filmmaking and I love how each shot establishes something new and I love the themes and the concerns. Like they're so like timely and weighty. So that's my one, yeah. Yeah. That's my one criticism of the film. Yes. But then the way that it's done, there are things about the way that it's done that I love. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Mary, this woman who comes into his life, and that he then has a con- this connection with, that's the thing that saves him. I love that. Like, I love that ending. Yeah. Even if some of his actions aren't believable. Yeah, so one thing I notice with Mary, so again, just a re- quick reminder, Mary is the wife of Michael, commit suicide. The wife didn't commit suicide, so Michael did. She asked Reverend Toller to counsel Michael, and uh, when Michael committed suicide, they like they still continued to interact and form a bond. But one thing I noticed with, with Mary is like, so when she's, when there's scenes with her in the film, it's not always, but that's when like the camera moves. There's actual motion. Throughout the majority of the film, it's like static. Right. Austere. Poof, here we are, here's the world. Yeah, but with Mary, like, like when they're riding bicycles, the camera's like, it's fixed, but it's following them. It's moving around. They, when they're levi- levitating and floating, which we can get into, it's moving. I mean, at the end, it like literally twirls and swirls around. Yeah. There's absolutely like a life and um, a complete break from the rest of the film when she's involved. Yeah, and it's, it's um, all of those static shots, all of that groundedness is going toward this aim of these transcendental moments where suddenly the camera is whirling around. It's these moments of connection. They levitate when they lie on the floor together and they're transported. And then at the end of the film, when they embrace, the camera swirls around them. And it just makes those moments feel more fantastic or unreal because of how they stand in contrast. The levitation scene does kind of jump out Mary shares the magical mystery tour that her and Michael used to call it. She shares it with Reverend Toller, and basically Toller lays on the ground. Mary lays on top of him. They don't do anything else. They just lay there, arms outstretched. And breathe together. And breathe together. And then in the film, they, they begin to levitate, and they go like into space, and then the beauty of nature, and then it bleeds into images of pollution, and we see like an anguished Toller's face. What do you make of all that? Put you on the spot here. (laughs) I don't know. I guess, um, so the reason that she comes to him and the reason that they're lying on the floor is she says that I'm afraid of everything now. Michael was strong. He made me feel safe and now I'm afraid of everything. They're doing this exercise to comfort her and she is being comforted and he is being comforted. He hasn't shared with her, but he is going through all of this stuff too on his own. I don't know, is that where his mind goes? Does he start thinking about life, connection, beauty? And then do Michael's concerns bleed into the picture, bring him back to this place? I don't know. Yeah, no, I I think you might be completely hitting that (laughs) on the head. When Uh, Michael dies, there's a scene of Toller in his room at night, and the only light is his computer screen, like shining on his mm -hmm. face. 
and he's looking at videos of a of some sort of suicide bomber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought of two movies. I thought of Cure and I thought of Pulse because as soon as Michael died, same director. Yes, actually. Yeah. Same director. <laughs> yeah. But both of those movies have to do with a transference. And as soon as Michael dies, Toller takes on those fears and concerns about the planet and about the future of humanity. And in that scene, it really felt to me like the internet was this portal and he was being radicalized in his room alone at night. Mm. Like the evils of humanity coming through the screen. Yeah. There was something something almost supernatural about how quickly he takes on those concerns. Mm. And I mean those those movies have just been on my mind and yeah. and that's you know First Reformed <laughs> is really J horror in disguise. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, in, in all honesty though, that that's a, that's fascinating. But I, I think you were you were absolutely right on that. As you were saying it, I kind of lit up in my mind. They're not obviously literally levitating. That's that's the connection aspect. That's how they feel. And like Toller and Mary are connecting and just enjoying the, just the beauty of living. And then all the ideas and memories of the decay of the natural world, the despair of humanity just like seeps in. And he, even in that beautiful moment, cannot escape it. and mm-hmm. just sucks him in. I mean, that's it. You might say connection could save us, but for how long? How long will we be here? What will life be like in 50 years? I don't know. There's something to it. There's this idea in that, which is that this thing, that this magical moment that they're having is under threat. Yeah. It's like, this is coming to an end. But maybe it's also just an example of that tension that we talked about earlier, the duality of it. Mm-hmm. There's absolute beauty and then abject horror and ugliness in the same scene, in the same room yeah. between two people. Also, just kind of an aside, I read about Paul Schrader himself basically said, what would Andrei Tarkovsky, what would he do? He would levitate. That's literally what he said. <laughs> I heard that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that was, uh, he was paying homage to uh, one of his favorite directors or a director that uh-huh. he admires. So yeah. Maybe that's all it was. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's the film's austere. It's very grounded in reality. It's very bleak. But there are these moments that shine through that just break that wall. So the levitation scene and the ending. Mm -hmm. So I I guess maybe I'll break down the ending a little bit. Sure. So Reverend Toller, he's been radicalized. He's appealed to his spiritual leader and found that the spiritual leader is not interested whatsoever in climate change or the plight of humanity. And he straps on a suicide vest. And he's thinking about detonating himself in his own church at the 250th consecration? Reconsecration ceremony. Reconsecration ceremony of of the church that he's the head of. Yeah, so Pastor Jeffers is going to be there, as well as the CEO of Balkan Industries. Which has funded this event. He views it almost as his mission to take out these, these people. So he gets ready to do that, but then he notices Mary shows up. Who he told not to come. He told not to come, but she wanted to see him. She shows up and he basically abandons that plan and starts to basically a form of self-flagellation. He wraps himself in barbed wire. He's having a complete mental break at this point. He pours himself a glass of Drano in a whiskey glass. Mm -hmm. And we see Mary show up in the room. And he drops the glass and they, they kiss. 
and the camera just spins and the music soars and the lighting is actually bright. And that's how the film ends. And it's just such a interesting way to end the film. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. The music that you mentioned is a rendition of Leaning on the Everlasting Arms, mm. which is playing in the chapel. Yeah. So there's an organ and I think there's a choir singing Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. As these two come together, embrace, kiss, and the camera spins out of control. Transcendent is the word for it. It's yeah. like the movie has been interrupted by like a miracle. It's so different. Yeah. Than, than the rest of the film. Uh, Paul Schrader himself has said, like, so either an actual miracle happened where Mary shows up, and if you remember, Pastor Jeffers, uh, he tries to go in there and the door's locked, but then Mary shows up. She's just in there. Yeah. So it's either a miracle or Reverend Toller's literally dying, but God is, has given him a vision of heaven, basically, which is this embrace and this kiss. Yeah, I don't know if I want to make sense of it like that. Well, that's literally what the director said. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to explain it. Yeah. At least for myself. You know, honestly, both times I watched it, I didn't think, how did she get in there? Yeah. If you'd asked me about it, I would have said, well, there must have been another door that was unlocked. Mm -hmm. The important thing to me is that he is at death's doorstep. He is on the verge of doing something terrible, and she interrupts him and saves him from himself and from his despair. But And what does she represent? She's with child. Her name is Mary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, well, I think that's a, the transcendental aspect there is anything can happen in this, this miraculous event, whether it actually happened or he's dying and going to heaven and that's heaven. You know, mm -hmm. there's still like some, some intervention there, something that has not existed that the entire film suddenly comes in into focus. Breaks through. Yeah. And she, she's also concerned about the planet and the future of humanity, but she wants to raise her baby. Yeah. And she wants to live. And she manages to have hope. Yeah. Yeah, I, I read an article, I don't remember which one it was exactly, but said basically as, as all the men around Mary disintegrate, she yeah. carries on. That's a great point. <laughs> Yeah, there's something true in that. <laughs> it's the woman that is level-headed and that um, is the giver and sustainer of life and redeems, you know, Toller in this instance. Maybe we should talk about our personal feelings about the future of humanity. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose we could. How long do you have? <laughs> well, I mean, do you feel like there's hope? I'm a parent. So I have to, I have to think there's hope in order to raise a well-adjusted human. Yeah. <laughs> because if I go around thinking that there's no hope, then my daughter is fucked. She's, she's going to be impacted by my lack of hope, my depression, whatever you want to call it. Right. So I don't know, maybe that's a, a cop-out, but I feel like I don't have the luxury yeah. of despair. Yeah, and maybe that's the position Mary's in. I yeah. do not have the luxury, like against all odds. Yeah. I have to hope. Yeah. What it feels like to me is that we're in a very big ship and we're slowly changing course. And whether we're changing course fast enough, I don't know. There are reasons to be hopeful and we collectively are becoming more aware of the issue and becoming more concerned. And, but as an individual, I feel like I'm just a passenger. I don't feel like I 
really have any control over what eventually happens to us. And I know that humanity, you know, we have a lifespan too, just like any individual, you know. We won't be here forever. Humanity will not persist indefinitely. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I feel like, I feel hopeful. I feel like we need to do what we can, of course. And that hopefully it's enough. Meanwhile, we have to make the most of our lives. Yeah, maybe my natural proclivity is to despair. <laughs> maybe that's why I like this film so much and why I like the character of Reverend Toller so much. I feel like I identify with him a lot. Granted, I'm not a person of faith, so my hope is not on the eternal or supernatural. But I've found that a mindset of nihilism and assuming that everything is fucked is just not beneficial right. to anybody or myself. Mm -hmm. And so, as I said before, I am a parent, so I have to try to find a reason to believe her life and her future is going to be better than mine. Mm -hmm. and uh, isn't going to just erupt into a ball of fire. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> yeah, everybody, go watch First Reformed if you haven't yet. It's an austere, bleak film that is somehow bristling with hope. So, you've come to Exploring Cinema Season 2 for topics about wasn't, grief. Wasn't this fun? Grief and hopelessness. <laughs> <laughs> I swear, we've done episodes on, like, so many episodes on horror films, yeah. and films about grief. That's kind of my thing. It's, you know, that's, yeah. that's what we're here for, I guess. I hope you all enjoyed listening to this. Once again, give us a follow on Instagram at ExploringCinema417. And as always, I'm Josiah. And I'm Jonathan. And you guys keep exploring, even in the face of despair.